Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. Cool. Welcome. Good to have you. Well, thank um, you. I have, a, I have a special guest today, everybody. Those of you who listen to the Cage Club Podcast Network probably are familiar with Nico. He is one of the hosts of X's for Podcast, as well as HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, which he co-hosts with his husband, Kevo. Uh, welcome, Nico. Good to have you. Well, thank you. That was just like plugging all my products. Couldn't do it better myself if I tried. <laughs> yeah, you can leave now. You got everything you wanted out of this. No, I didn't get my Twitter in there yet. <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was that. I could save it for the end, but I mean, I'm just, just do it. Just I'm, do it now. Do it now. We'll just do I'm it now. Nico action I'll... everywhere. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty cool Twitter handle. Well, my husband came up with it for me uh, conveniently. He one day was just like you're nonstop you're like you're just like nico action all the time and i was like nope that's it that's my identity hold on wait let me check is it available on twitter it's available on twitter that's my identity now that's my name anyways uh you're into nerdy stuff if anybody who has ever listened to your podcast would probably know you've covered things like star wars and alien and you're currently sort of in the process of Fantastic Four is your next venture. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I find Fantastic Four as a property fascinating. You know, they, they were called the world's greatest comic mag at one point, which right. was, you know, their moniker. Everybody had something, right? Daredevil was the man without fear. The X-Men were the strangest teens of all time. But the, the Fantastic Four were the world's greatest comic mag. And, you know... When I think about how the Fantastic Four have been so overtaken by their side characters, like Black Panther, until people started paying attention to minority characters and characters of color in fiction, was an undersung hero for way too many years. And instead, a lot of the focus went to the Fantastic Four. You know, the Fantastic Four have yet to make a billion dollars at anything. And Mm -hmm. it currently seems like Black Panther can't be in a movie that makes less than a billion dollars. So I'm just kind of fascinated by how that all shakes out. It's funny because it seems like Fantastic Four of all the Marvel properties is the one that is hardest to sort of get out of its own time, right? It really seems like a product of when it was created. And and I think a lot of the um, adaptations have really struggled to figure out how to make it modern. Um, And maybe they should just not try. Well, and, you know, I think part of the issue is it kind of goes to the heart of the, the notions of the Fantastic Four. When you take a look at the Fantastic Four, they represent the nuclear family, right? And by that, I mean, like, literally, they're a family that got hit by a nuclear radiation. So <laughs> they are literally a mom and a dad, a son, and, like, 1.5 dogs, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. And now, of course, they are the nuclear family, and they they have two children, Valeria and Franklin, and, frankly, their kids are the best thing about them. So it's a shame that they keep, you know, it's a shame that the modus operandi for everything in fiction seems to be trace it back to the origin, right? There's so much fascinating material to be pumped out of something 
during the course of its life cycle, as opposed to feeling the need to trace back to its origin. So if we could just stop saying, hey, here's the day that the Fantastic Four started, I think they'd have a chance. But it's what Homecoming got right about Spider-Man. Don't show me him get bit. I don't want to see a kid get bit by an insect. Like, Mm -hmm. I've seen that happen. Like, I got bit by insects, and I've got to be honest, I was never, ever able to throw a car. So I don't want to see this happen to somebody else in a wish fulfillment kind of way that I didn't get. Yeah, I mean, we know who Spider-Man is, and (laughs) you don't have to keep telling us. And you're right. One of the great things about the way the MCU handled that was having Spider-Man be introduced in Civil War, but then also just sort of alluding to his backstory and not even really, you know showing it right so he just shows up on the scene um already spider-man because yeah we we know who he is uh i think you're right the the fantastic four origin story is kind of boring um the dynamic between the characters is what's most interesting about it so um if the mcu figures out how to get them into uh, the next phase yeah i i'm i'm hopeful they'll be able to do something with them that's actually does them justice um, which has not yet really been done <laughs> on film in a live action setting um, after three different tries. So we shall see. Okay, so you are you're big into the 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 Comic Con stuff, the nerdy stuff. Has that been a lifelong thing for you? Are you have you always been a, a sci fi, comic booky, nerdy type? So I love telling this story because it's like the only place that I can claim street cred. So my dad is. You know, like the the child of first generation Americans, and you know he's a he's a good Latino guy from the Bronx. So of course he loved comic books growing up. Mm-hmm. That's like a thing. That's like a cultural thing. And because comic books represented a better life, he also loved video games and variety shows for the same reason. Hey, me too. But anyway, point of story. My dad loved comics. So growing up, I loved comics. I had a lot of access to comics. Like I held you know, books from the 60s at nine years old. And that's how I absorbed this material. So I grew up with my dad taking me to, you know, conventions and cons and getting to be a part of this world, which is why I knew I wanted to be part of it when I grew up. Because, you know, as a kid, this was like my life. So yeah, this, this has been a thing for me since I'm, you know, six years old. And it's been a lot of fun. Do you like to do the overthinking? Do you like to be the, uh, the the analytical type when it comes to? Oh, oh, there's there's nothing else. To, there's nothing else. To do. <laughs> I'm on way too many panels a year. I have previously been, although actually I've got some panels coming up, some digital stuff. But I, you know, go around the country and speak extensively on panels. One of the biggest things in our coverage of media is the way, sort of the the socio political factors impact the way the storytelling and the narrative is shaped. It's a huge part of how I interact with fiction. I like Mm -hmm. to understand not just why or how that piece of fiction came to be, but I like to understand the, the way culture reacts to it. In that case, you're going to like today's guest. Kevin S. Decker is a philosophy professor at Eastern Washington University. And if you've ever bought one of those books that says the philosophy of fill in the name of some cultural property (laughs) 
uh, the philosophy of Star Wars, the philosophy of Star Trek, the philosophy of Alien, the philosophy of Breaking Bad, the philosophy of South Park. Uh, there's a good chance that Kevin S. Decker has had something to do with it. He is the author and editor and co-author of a whole bunch of those books, um, along with a cabal of other philosophy and science fiction nerds. Um, he's also the sole author of one of my favorites, Who is Who? The Philosophy of Doctor Who. And I'm really happy to be talking to him today. So uh, without further ado, that's Nico. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Well, hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Very well. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well, I guess. Yeah, no no COVID uh, close to me here. So good to virtually meet you, Nico. Absolutely. Right back at you. Um, so, Kevin, let's talk a little bit about this whole the philosophy of things. So yeah. when, when, you, when you look, when you search those philosophy of books, um, there are some names that appear to be on all of them, and 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 you are one of those names that's on on a bunch of them. How did this whole thing start? It seems to be like there's like a cabal of people who yeah. uh, are responsible for tackling every single little niche of popular culture and exploiting the philosophy therein. Um, how, how did that happen? That's right. Uh, well, the initial uh, publisher mover on this was. Open Court and uh, Open Court's an interesting uh, outfit. Again, like Wellesley, I'm not going to trash talk them. I don't work with them anymore. <laughs> um, they um, they actually started off as an all philosophy press that was uh, run by a fellow named Paul Karras, um, and Karras Publishing is one of their um, one of their sub imprints. But uh, Karras was both a, a, a well known and 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 uh, well appreciated philosopher. And was one of really the early people to say, hey, you know, in America, maybe it's not just enough to have a few philosophy journals, but maybe we should be publishing the positivists from Europe. Maybe we should be publishing some of the continental thinkers like Ernst Cassirer, etc., uh, in English translation. So Open Court has a, a, a great pedigree, I think, for publishing stuff uh, in, in any philosophical area. Uh, I want to name Eon Scoble and uh, Bill Irwin, William Irwin. I'm not sure where Eon is anymore, but uh, Bill has been at uh, King's College uh, in uh, Pennsylvania for the longest time. Bill was the person who uh, my my friend Jason Eberl and I um, originally approached with an idea to do a book on Star Wars and philosophy that was uh, that eventually came out in 2005 to coincide with Revenge of the Sith coming out. Um, and at that time, there were probably about 10 or 12 other books that had been published by Open Court, inc including two that I think are notable not only for their sales, but also because they genuinely had really good uh, original material, a kind of a cultural criticism Focus. One of those was on The Simpsons, and the, the other one was on Seinfeld. Um, and uh, I was familiar with those. And uh, so my friend Jason and I said, hey, you know, why don't we do this for uh, Star Wars? He and I would get together 
Thursday nights uh, in St. Louis uh, as ready to have a job graduate students and eat sausage and green olive pizza and watch either Star Wars film or something from Star Trek, which we also liked and, <laughs> and did books on. So, And of course, those franchises are very different. I mean, Star Wars has this mythic appeal. Star Trek is very cerebral, as Har Harlan Ellison called it. Um, and so the sort of chapters that you end up in books about them uh, end up being very different. Uh, but I've always considered myself to be a philosophical generalist. I'm interested in almost everything, and it's hard for me to specialize in anything. So um, I, I feel pretty comfortable um, uh, editing these books because I don't say no to an odd idea. I just say no to a bad or to a poorly written idea, uh, usually. And, and I like to have an interdisciplinary focus in the books, too. If we get people outside philosophy, I like to pull them in as well. What, what are some of the bad ideas that you've been presented with? Well, I should say that 99% um, of the bad ideas are just ones that have already been done. Like, if somebody sent in a chapter proposal for the ultimate Star Trek and philosophy that we had pretty much already done, in the original Star Trek and philosophy, then, of course, not only am I like, please do your homework, you know, look, look at the table of contents. It's all online. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not going to do the same thing again, even if there are some slight tweaks. I, generally speaking, in the pop culture publishing area, to me, the worst ideas are whole books that have actually already been published, like the Atkins diet. And philosophy was one. Oh my God. Atkins diet. Yeah. I completely understand what you're coming from. I every time I say to somebody, "Yeah, you know, I'm very involved in you know X Men fan culture, etc." and they go, "Oh, did you know that those two main characters, the magnet one and the bald one, are based on Martin Luther King and the <laughs> government white people?" And I have to be like, "You're really not even close." But yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. And yeah. it's that thing where it's that that touching on oh. I've heard about this because, yeah, that's got to get old hearing the pitches that you are like, that's a watered down version of what we did. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And some people have really good ideas. Like uh, there was an author who uh, pitched for Ultimate Star Trek and Philosophy to do a chapter on Janeway, Captain Janeway, and the um, the feminine, ver not feminine, feminist, the 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 virtues of that a woman brings to uh, to the decision-making process, focusing specifically on an episode in which the Voyager spaceship uh, is trapped in a bubble of space or something with several other ones from other races. And after an initial confrontation, Janeway puts her neck out on the line to encourage cooperative trading of goods and energy and things like that. And, and basically says, you know, we're all just going to die here, uh, not moving uh, unless we. And it was a great, great idea for a chapter. But we said um, it's going to be really thin if you base it on one episode. So we really would like you to develop Janeway as the leader uh, in more episodes. And the person just refused to do it, which was really strange to me. Um, this was an academic philosopher, you know. Mm. Uh, who has received academic criticism before, I have no doubt. Um, and some people are like that, you know, and usually we find a way to inveigle ourselves with them and say, look at how much better it will be, blah, blah, blah. But some people just say no, you know. 
tell me a little bit about where you're coming from um, as a someone who explores the intersection of not just science fiction, kind of predominantly science fiction, but also what's sometimes called um, genre <laughs> television, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, like Breaking Bad is not science fiction, but a lot of people who are of the sort of Comic-Con ilk uh, are also huge Breaking Bad fans and the same thing of South Park and that sort of thing. I, I understand pretty intimately the relationship between philosophy and uh being a sci-fi nerd i i i was a philosophy and religion major in college i teach religion um and i sort of came to it like where where it all sort of clicked with me uh was when i read joseph campbell Mm -hmm. um when i was in when i was in high school and bridged the 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 gap between uh star wars which i which i loved to my core because i'm of that age uh and you know philosophy and religion and and i was like oh there's there's a there's a there's a marriage to be had here um so you know the for me there wasn't really a a starting point they philosophy and religion and sci-fi were all just sort of part of the same kind of a soup what was it for you like which came first did you want to be a philosophy professor did you want to study philosophy before you, you you developed a love for for science fiction did one emerge from the other well the philosopher of science fiction the philosopher of popular culture definitely came after the science fiction fan and mm-hmm. That's a problem I often find, you know, almost nobody calls me on this, but in my own mind, every time I work on one of these projects, I think, am I being more of an academic or more of a fan in this? And what is the proper balance to achieve? Because when you publish a book like um, uh, Alien and Philosophy, what you're really hoping is that somebody who loves the Alien films will see this on an end cap or in the philosophy section and go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And <clears throat> they pick it up and, and read it in the store without paying for it. Of course, that's what always happens. Uh, but now that there are no stores because of COVID, people just <laughs> buy it online. So now, actually, I got to tell you, gents, I, except for a couple of small advances on these books, I've never seen a penny. So it really is a labor of love. Oh, wow. Uh, put these out. And it's also a labor of um, scooping up people who could do with being published and scooping up former students and pushing them into the limelight and giving them something to feel good about, you know, uh, this is their first publication. The Alien book, for example, is co-edited by a former student of mine, Jeff Ewing, uh, who was a philosophy major at Eastern. And he was much more of a horror film fan than me and was so helpful in getting a few of the contributors to that who talked about horror so explicitly. Um so in any case, uh, the science fiction fan in me came first. I remember back in 1977 being dragged by my parents to see Star Wars A New Hope because I had no interest in that whatsoever. Um, and I still remember the night. It was raining. I was looking out the window of the car as we were driving home afterwards, and I was seeing Jawas and sand crawlers and stormtroopers in my head and it was as close to a conversion experience as I've I've probably ever had in my life and started reading a lot started watching Star Trek in syndication read a lot of Isaac Asimov Arthur C Clarke uh that sort of thing but you know the downside to that is what I I started with is that sometimes I worry that the critical component of being an academic of popular culture is sometimes subsumed under the shared joy of talking about the subject matter in a, you know, 
in a in a community community forming way with your audience. And I have to wonder, especially with something like you brought up the philosophy of Star Trek. Uh, you brought up the philosophy of Star Wars, and I feel like with Alien when Ridley Scott decides he wants to make $25 million and goes back and creates a prequel, you know, he's not really recontextualizing the franchise. He's just adding another layer, but Mm -hmm. with something like star Wars, they're constantly recontextualizing the perspective on the narrative. You know, if you watch star Wars, the big bad is Darth Vader. If you watch return of the Jedi, Darth Vader is the puppy looking for his son to forgive him. And the big bad is this aging bald man on a chair. And it's sort of that evolution of the idea of star Wars that I feel like if you watch the original trilogy, the prequel trilogy, the sequel trilogy, it really does kind of change the philosophy of what the force is of what a Jedi is. Like, how do you balance your own fandom with that unbiased perspective? Because, I mean, like, I don't like the prequels. I'm all original and sequel. So I would be like, no, the prequels don't count. And I know I would be a biased presenter on this material. Right. Well, that's the thing is you do have to have a little bit of struggle in designing a, a book project like like the ones that, that Open Court and now Wiley Blackwell have uh, have published. There are a couple of other publishers out there, but those are the two main ones. And um, part of that has to be talking about what you're going to take as canon. In, mm-hmm. in, in right, and so for a lot of visual media, that's fairly easy. Anything that has been aired under the official Lucasfilm rubric, which included um, at least for well for both of our books, it included uh, the uh, the animated series that are now on Disney Plus. But um, around the time that Ultimate Star Wars came out, um, we, you know, it had been sold to Disney and Disney had basically said the EU is gone. Um, and so we didn't have that many people that were interested in doing things that were heavily expanded universe uh, related. But we did have a couple of authors who wanted to write about the concept of canon, which, of course, is philosophically very interesting and relevant uh, because uh, it's always a question of, you know, who am I studying in this class and why in an existentialism class do we now have Dostoevsky, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, so um, so that was a great opportunity, actually, to philosophically engage with this issue of banishing the EU and saying, I mean, what the authors effectively said is, did anybody really have the right to do that? And their conclusion was that, so much um, fanfic and so much fan material had been uh, issued into the marketplace uh, by fans on Star Wars that it really wasn't owned by Disney or Lucas anymore. And so they said, no, I mean, anybody who wants to continue to think of the EU as existing, they, they provided a better argument than I am for that. <laughs> that. That was basically their point. A lot of times people like us, that is to say me and Nico and I presume you are are criticized for for over analyzing, um, for not simply enjoying science fiction and fantasy and comic book properties um, on on the surface, and and being too nitpicky about the details. Yeah. As someone who you know th- that's that's kind of what you do with with these books, especially. Yeah. Um, do you think that is there any merit to that, or on 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 the flip side of it, do you, do you think that if someone simply watches the Alien franchise or the Matrix or Star Wars or Star Trek, 
that they are getting a philosophy lesson almost kind of subconsciously without even realizing it. In other words, like all of the all of the materials there, it doesn't need to be recontextualized as philosophical. It's 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 um, whether you think about it or not, you are still being taught philosophy. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, I think that for a lot of the material out there uh, that constitutes a good, rich, robust pop culture artifact, as I like to call movies and, and graphic novels that we study, um, it, it is already philosophical in that regard. And this plays into discussions I have with students in philosophy and pop culture classes at Eastern on um, the concept of what is a classic, right? Hmm. Um, because, you know, we, uh, for example, I've taught first year experience classes for uh, freshmen, for first year students at Eastern on superheroes and on Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings. And um, I want to, I want to, uh, I want to give the students an argument for why this is not just frivolity, why this is not just uh, us, uh, you know, hanging out reading Wonder Woman or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, we talk about the fact that uh, there are different definitions of what a classic is, but a, 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 a lot of people agree that a classic is kind of an inexhaustible reservoir of meaning, right? Uh, you, you go back, what I do is I go back to Lord of the Rings every 10, 12 years or so and reread the whole thing. And my experience is, is very different in each case. Um, and, and John, you'll know this from your, your, your interest in, in theology, but uh, the hermeneutics, right, of approaching a pop culture artifact multiple times after having had experiences perhaps that make one more thoughtful in the meantime uh, means that, you know, there are certain things that you can watch uh, the first time and get uh, a lot of funded meaning out of. You go, that's deep, or, you know, hey, um, it's great how that storyline tied up all of the, you know, really important, outstanding questions that were raised or something like that. There are other things that can't. I, for example, I don't, I maintain that I don't think there will ever be a book in one of these series about reality television shows. And the, I think that the meaning there is, I mean, you could probably do something about Thomas Hobbes and, you know, survival of the fittest and, and that'd be one chapter and you'd be done. So uh, there'd be that. <laughs> or the Truman Show. I like that would be a better sort of um, well to, yeah. to to mine from, right? The Truman Show is because, right? The Truman Show is self consciously uh, talking about the, the the problems and and the weird things that erupt as as a result of this this reality show, whereas mm -hmm. the reality shows unself consciously present non-reality as if it is reality we know that it's very staged we know that the actors you know the the real people uh, are put into positions of conflict and you know uh, asymmetrical knowledge and things like that in order to enhance the storyline so ironically right reality tv is not that real in the in the long run no and if I may recommend to you guys, as fans of Breaking Bad and its ilk, and on this discussion, there actually is a drama series from a few years ago, received a number of award nominations and awards, called Unreal. And it was produced by and created by a woman who had been a producer on The Bachelor, who left the series 
and turned to writing a fictionalized version of it. Uh, the, uh, the writing, the directing, and the acting all received numerous nominations over the years. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend it because it really does talk about just like most of it is based on hyper dramatized versions of what she experienced, but it actually does take the time to analyze the concept of how they craft a narrative of a villain around one bad day. Uh-huh. And then that's it. You're the villain. And, and the thing is that with a show like that and it is, is, and I think this is sort of what Kevin is getting to is that the, the concept of reality television is in and of itself a, a good source for discussing philosophical ideas. Um, the Bachelor itself might not be, but when you when you when you have a sort of a, a, a meta analysis of The Bachelor in something like Unreal, yeah, yeah like it is just like a Truman Show in a post-reality world. As opposed to the Truman Show, which came into existence well before the rise of reality television. So it sort of doesn't really understand the medium it's supposed to be talking about. Right, right. There's there's actually a Doctor Who from the uh, mid I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) My husband got married in the doctor's coat. Same here. Yeah. So there's a Doctor Who from the mid-80s called Vengeance on Varos that was critical for promoting video nasties, for promoting violence. And of course, that completely ignores uh, that the whole thing is just a brutal takedown of not reality television, again, because it kind of predates that. But it's uh, it's basically saying, look, our, predil- our human predilection with uh, publicly shaming and humiliating people and our delight in kind of a culture of violence uh, is just grotesque and decadent and disgusting. I mean, mm-hmm. the only thing I could take away from it, and geez, I was like 16 when I watched it. So come on, uh, you know, older critics, uh, get with the program. Yeah, Vengeance on Varos um, was about the uh, was about sensationalist television period. It had more to do actually with the way that the news was being broadcast and the yeah. news, of course, being the original re- reality television. But yeah, you're right. It, it's It's, again, that's that's a sort of philosophical idea right Right. there's there's a lot of philosophy in the existence of reality television and in the way that it appeals to people which you know maybe 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 there's a book there but yeah but so you know ultimately what what we've been talking about are shows that have kind of a fold in them where there's a reflective dimension that is consciously part of the writing and the production of the show that uh, allows the show or the movie to in some way reflect on itself or Nico, as you were talking about with star Wars that allows the, the, the franchise to change over time. And for those changes to not just simply be manipulations of the deck chairs on the Titanic, but rather for those to be meaningful. Right. And so for example, at the end of the star Wars uh, saga, when we find that Ray and Ren are, a dyad in the force, uh, well, that completely subverts the whole discourse of the chosen one. Mm. And it puts a very different kind of metaphysical flavor onto the story uh, with a dyad, with a dualism, in effect, than you would have with a monism. Um, and, and it also challenges the the, the criticisms of, of Campbell's mythology that the uh, the mono myth is too mono, you know. Uh, now this is two people's story, not one person's story. Well, and that's actually 
one of the things that's kind of overtaking comics in a way in discussion, the Phoenix had been inexorably linked from Jean Grey from its moment of inception. But over the last couple of years, a writer, a male writer, has been given access to the creature, not Jean, but Phoenix. And it is now gone and from this embodiment of fiery, passionate woman to a number of men have had it. And there's a lot of discussion on the way removing the phoenix from this one person that it's part of her and making it, oh, this godhood that everybody actually can access at any point has made it both more accessible to people and in a lot of ways removed it from its feminist origins. That's interesting. But I know that similar things like making Thor a woman briefly have, you know, been tried out. Um, I think the experimentation is good as long as the, uh, the, there are certain, I mean, here's the thing with any franchise, you can, it's like the boat of the ship of Theseus. I think you can change certain things about it over time, but there are certain things that if you change, um, uh, um, uh, if you change too much, or if you change some core elements, you don't really have the same thing anymore. I know I'm probably in the minority here, but I don't think that Star Trek that has been produced since J.J. Abrams took over the franchise is really Star Trek anymore. Oh, I agree. No, it's not. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's just not. It's not. It's just not. It's not Star Trek. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. okay. It's a futuristic space opera that, ironically, would fit in a lot better with the authors that were inspiring the original, mm-hmm. movie, like Roddenberry. I mean, if you if you read stuff from Heinlein or... Uh, the the Lensman series or whatever. It's just flat out action with all kinds of crazy ass ideas or whatever. But the human beings in those stories are like the human beings in the 30s and 40s and 50s when they were being written. And I think one of the things that Roddenberry was trying to do with Star Trek is to say, what will be the evolution of the human psyche, of human morality, etc.? Uh, can we show a situation in which we can still tell great drama that has people who, uh, frankly, have overcome some of the neuroses and the limitations that the characters in Picard and Discovery and the Star Trek movies still have, you know? Right, right. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dissent just a tiny bit here, but actually to more sort of prove your point, um, the, the original, the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek, I think, is a wonderful celebration of the, um, the, the optimism and the sheer joy and dreaming of, of Roddenberry's original vision, that it has this idea of a future that is not hopeless, but is progressive and uh, constantly looking forward and constantly looking to improve itself. And uh, it captures that wonderfully. But once that well has run dry. In other words, once the um, the philosophical underpinnings are gone, um, it is no longer Star Trek. As of the 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 second nine eleven was an inside job Star Trek, whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 I think that sort of, in some way, kind of justifies everything that that you do. That like it's like yeah, no, actually the philosophy element is is fundamentally part of the DNA, and without it. You, you you go off on this sort of space opera action movie um, rant. It has so much to do with that J.J. Abrams is so good at creating a reflection of the world around him. Correct. And when you think about Lost, when you think about Felicity, you know, the things that built his empire before he became J.J. Abrams, he was a guy who created reflections of society for people to sit back and watch at 8 p.m. 
And to give him a show that's meant to be the hallmark of futurism is such a discordant idea to me. And I think that's why as Star Trek has gone further forward, it's gone further backward in time for the most part. I, I love that analysis. I, I would only, I, I love it. And I would, I would only add to that, that, you know, the, the notion of futurism has in a non-philosophical sense, in the sense of what sci-fi looks like and feels like, for example, to me has almost completely gone away. Right. Yeah. We, we live in a, in a new science fiction realism, a great, great examples of this exist in Dr. Who, which is still my favorite television show. Thanks to, to Peter Capaldi coming along and saving oh. my opinion. Bless oh you. My God, I love yeah. you so much. I love my young man, cranky doctor. <laughs> I, I, I like Matt Smith as well. I, I, I maintain to people who I don't want to get into a discussion about this with that I like them all classic and new equally. Uh, and as somebody who's written a book on it and other things, I can I can fake that. But Capaldi, you know, not only a fan as a kid, but uh, just, just a consummate actor and willing to take risks. Uh, and despite that, um, in the new in the new Doctor Who, uh, almost inevitably, we go 200,000, 500,000 years into the future, and what? People look exactly like us. They talk mm. like us. They dress mm. almost exactly like us, you know. And the technology may be different, but the technology is not the focus in Doctor Who as it is, let's say, in Next Generation or something like that, where it's more of a focus. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, the futurism is gone, and in many ways, Star Trek has regressed, Nico. I like that idea, yeah. Let's talk about Doctor Who, since we're um, all three of us Doctor Who nerds. So to give you a little bit of context as to where I got into Doctor Who, I was born in the UK. When I lived in the UK, uh, Peter Davison was the doctor. As anybody who's a child of the 80s and um, has, you know, British... DNA. Uh, Doctor Who is very much a part of my life um, and, and my identity. I still have Peter Davidson's autograph on the back of a Doctor Who bookmark that I got in the late 80s. Nice. I also freaking love Peter Capaldi. He is um, now my favorite Doctor of all time. Yeah. Can I just, can I just interject because we're all nerding out here? Yeah. The body work that Peter Capaldi does with with walking, with, with the tilt of the head. I mean, it's just, it's just, just amazing. Sorry, and I, if I can, he's he's. There's a reason I think he's even better than any, like, because he's the Neil Gaimanification of the Doctor. Yeah. In that Neil Gaiman was the first ever rock star comic book writer, and he represented this idea of legacy and torch hand down, and it's the same thing, even though the face changes every few years, reflecting fandom and sci-fi, and then all of a sudden. The Doctor, once Neil Gaiman, in this very Sandmanian way, intersected with Doctor Who, suddenly the Doctor becomes an elderly version of Neil Gaiman. And it's just the greatest thing that ever happened. I love Tennant as well. Um, It's kind of hard not to love Tennant. But I I, I put Tennant in the same sort of uh, ranking as as Tom Baker in that the two of them... uh, it was more about them than it was about Doctor Who. And that's not to say any, like take anything away from them, but but there's something about both Tennant and uh, Capaldi, who were the first two actors to play the role, who also kind of grew up on the show and and, and, and knew the show intimately. And Capaldi um, had written a, a, a letter to, to the, to the, um, to, 
the Radio Times about Doctor Who when he was a teenager. And like, you know, he was a real he was a real nerd. So there's something about someone who um, has internalized the series then playing the Doctor that sort of makes that characterization so wonderful. And, and there's a lot of philosophy there as well. Right. But um, Kevin, I want to I want to I want to hear your kind of Doctor Who story and, and also, you know, what you think about sort of the way that kind of getting back to what Nico was saying earlier about um, these franchises that uh, are, are, are malleable in the way that Star Wars is. And Doctor Who really is the first to kind of break through that way, because a lot of what it gets its mileage out of is the fact that you just change this actor every several years and it's fine. And that all just dates back to, you know, the writers being like, well, William Hartnell's basically dying. So um, I guess we're going to have to recast him somehow. How are we going to do that? Well, it's sci-fi. We can do anything. Right. And like, everything else about Doctor Who seems to sort of spout from yeah. from that font. Yeah, that's right. I, I've been thinking about this uh, a lot. Doctor Who is really my jam. If we had video on Zencaster, I could, you know, show you these these uh, Doctor Who resin statues from Eagle Moss and five-inch. I won't buy Oh, those are gorgeous. The five-inch figures are, are lovely. Um, and and again, when I bring people into my office and say, I want to show you guys something weird, you know, come come here and look at this. I'm like, I'll hold up like a Quark uh, figure from 1968 and go, isn't it amazing that, you know, they can produce collectibles of a show that nobody watches anymore, barely anybody watches anymore. And this clunky little robot from 1968 in here, right here, I have a collectible of it, right? And then I usually pause and say, and that's why the terrorists hate us. But anyway, <laughs> uh, my, my Doctor Who story is the American Doctor Who story of somebody who stayed up late Sunday nights uh, at 1030 for my local PBS airing of Doctor Who. Uh, my PBS station had chosen the package uh, of um, the episodes being edited together. So I saw them in omnibus editions. Um, and actually that was fine with me because I didn't know that much about the show at the time. And later when I found out that there were cliffhangers and I got to watch it in that form, it was, it was great. It was like a whole new level, you know, level, uh, of, of interest for me. You know, when do they do amazing cliffhangers and when are they just the doctor looking at the camera going, Perry, you know, uh, (laughs) anyway, uh, so I actually remember uh, watching the show uh, since uh, the beginning of Tom Baker with my father in the early 80s. Uh, he would always fall asleep after about 10 minutes. You know, the pacing is such that uh, an older guy, you know, uh, might not be able to, to stay up uh, that late. But um, when VCRs were invented, I started taping them and I had my own collection. Um, I went down to the local comic shop to get the novelizations um, and um, I, uh, the Doctor Who magazine. Uh, I wanted to make my own compilation Doctor Who posters, so I would Xerox from the magazines and cut out pictures and make uh, posters that combined, you know, like uh, what would happen if the sixth Doctor met the third Doctor or whatever. In, in high school, uh, I had already been writing uh, somewhat unsuccessfully um, sci-fi and, and action adventure sort of stories and, and st- started tackling that with Doctor Who. And I'm actually proud to say that although I have not written a word of Doctor Who fiction for 
probably 30, 40 years, um, I just sent to Big Finish. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Big Finish. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, great, great quality stuff there. Uh, they have an annual Paul Sprague Memorial short trip opportunity. And I actually just sent them uh, a couple weeks ago um, a proposal in a, the first few pages for a story with the sixth doctor uh, called uh, Into an Hourglass. And that was really fun to write because the ideas had been rattling around in my head for a long time, and it was good to get them out uh, onto, I would say, paper. But obviously, we don't do it that way anymore. But <laughs> So yeah, um, when I came to Eastern in 2005, um, I decided it might be a good idea to create a new class that would allow philosophy professors to teach pop culture. And so we did that. And lately, every iteration of that that I've been doing has been focused on Doctor Who. Um, and, and specifically, uh, the last couple of times I've taught it, I've been focusing on metaphysics of time um, and trying to give the students the full uh, experience of as many doctors and as many different stories as I can with that. And, you know, it's just great uh, because... Most students who are not familiar with Doctor Who walk away from it and go, I wasn't aware of this. This is an amazing, you know, this is rich. Mm -hmm. And students who don't believe that are probably too intimidated by my personality to tell me that. So everybody seems to like it. Yeah, it depends on how you curate it, right? I mean, it, it, there's certain um, eras of Doctor Who that, well, frankly, were just not great quality um having to do with with budget concerns and so forth um every doctor has at least one story that is great including colin baker who who you know vicious on virus is is one of the all-time classics um but i've had the same experience i i i I have a lot of students now who um just they have (laughs) grown up on doctor who which is to say since eccleston but yeah they they don't need to be to, to be brought into it um but, you know, I've even shown students Unearthly Child, which is the first William Hartnell, which is incredible the way that it stands up yeah. uh, as, as, as science fiction to this very day. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the adage that there's no such thing as timeless science fiction is, is true. But I think one of the great things about Doctor Who is that it's not afraid of that, that it, it, it just constantly keeps telling great creative stories and finds ways of, you know, explaining away the um, giveaways uh, of yeah. it, right? That it just sort of exists within its own bubble. And, um, and, and that's probably why it's such an endless well of... of um, philosophy and and, uh, insight. Yeah, I think it is. It's also more difficult to access as a philosophical artifact, I've found, than Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, for example. Um, I I started my book, uh, Who is Who? The Philosophy of Doctor Who, by talking about the fact that unlike most uh, popular contemporary um, franchises, there's no one person who created Doctor Who. Um, And furthermore, that in the classic uh, decades of the show, there was a constantly changing production team of individuals who brought, you know, different perspectives of what it meant to do good quality children's drama uh, and science fiction. Um, and, you know, uh, in, in the Doctor Who and philosophy class, I, I do ask students to reflect on the difference between the old show and the new show, with the old one being in syndication in America, it would be a cult program, whereas uh, the, the new show is an authored program, right? Like Lost or um, Star Trek Discovery 
where there's one or two showrunners uh, who um, uh, define uh, what the program is going to look like in a much more fundamental way, I think, than the script editor used to do uh, in the old show. So in your in your teaching, how 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 hard do you have to work to kind of draw the line um, or sort of pace out uh, the amount of television and, and, and movies that you are going to use um, to teach these ideas. So for instance, like I, I could envision being like, okay, first semester, go and watch the entire series of Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. and I'll see you next semester and we'll talk about it, right? Um, how, how, how have you worked to kind of weave those in and also still keep the, the, the class, the, the fundamentals of philosophy without, without just a deluge of popular culture. Um, yeah, no, it's super tough. And it's also tough uh, selecting uh, books to go with the course. I did try to use my book once, but I actually found, here, here's my problem is I, I really never teach the same course, even if it's a gen ed course, the same way twice. Uh, even if it's from quarter to quarter. Um, I, I don't know if it's my ADD or something like that, but <laughs> I, I'm constantly like, oh, this didn't work. This this should work. You know, I'm constantly tinkering with things. Uh, with with Doctor Who uh, in philosophy, um, I, I'd like to tap into something that we talk about with the students. I talk about with the students early on, which is that philosophy is a conversation, um, you know, if you are willing to be open and tap into the conversation, you'll understand why people are making uh, the points that they're making, who they're responding to, uh, who they think their audience is, uh, etc. And in doing that, it's possible to set up a curated set of episodes, starting with Unearthly Child, just to kind of nail down the basic premise. Um, and then I usually go to the Aztecs from that uh, in order to set up a kind of common sense notion of uh, history is unchangeable because it has already happened. And I could also, with that, introduce Aristotle, who in De Interpretatione talks about how um, we can make claims about the future that are definitely true, but they have to be uh, tautological claims like there will be there will or will not be a sea battle tomorrow right you can you can make that claim at any time at any place you want and it will be true timeless right. true it doesn't right. really tell you anything right um, and then i introduce into that what is usually the first conceptual leap for the students to make which is this on aristotle's conception of logic uh, and 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 the law of the excluded middle which says that a claim is either true or false, nothing in between, no third option. I say, if I make the claim there will be a sea battle tomorrow today, if you look closely at what Aristotle says, Aristotle is implying that that claim needs to be true or false today, even though it hasn't happened yet, right? That's a kind of logical determinism, uh, that's there. Now, Aristotle ultimately waffles about this point because he wants to provide some space for uh, for free will and for choosing to have the sea battle tomorrow, whatever. It's more complicated than that. But in the Aztecs, when the first doctor famously tells his companion, Barbara, you cannot rewrite history, not one line, um, he seems to be reflecting something similar to 
this uh, Aristotelian view that claims about tomorrow or, or about today uh, were already true timelessly in some sense, and therefore you can't change the, the basis for those claims. And so as we move forward through the show, and I have to skip a lot of Second Doctor uh, because uh, as great as the Second Doctor is, a lot of his shows are, you know, scary runarounds and corridors. Uh, I have to get to something like Day of the Daleks with John Pertwee. Uh, there are other things I, I have done before, like Inferno, the alternate universe uh, story. But you have to have to skip around to get to stories that develop that conversation about the nature of time and if time travel and changing history is possible. And so each doctor's representative story, and I try to pick good ones, right, mm. end up being a new guidepost in that journey down to uh, to the to the end to the current position of the show and to the current thinking about the nature of time. Um, so it's been fun, you know. It's it's very difficult, but it's been fun. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, not just the technology changes, but our sense of the uh, timey wimeyness of time in, since Doctor Who started in the you know fifty plus years ago um, has also evolved. Uh, so, so I, yeah, and that's and that's part of why science fiction can't be timeless, and and why that's a good thing, right? Because yeah, it, it's it's constantly the best of it is commentary on um, on genuine science. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, um, you 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 say you teach a course about the comics as well i wonder what like what kind of themes do you think obviously and you know nico can can speak to this very well uh comic books is a very broad category and superhero is a very broad category and and um obviously there's a lot of stuff to mine there but uh what sorts of ideas do you um home in on when you're when you're using that as a source yeah so um one of the things that I always do with the comic book class is uh, I, I always focus in on visual iconography and interpreting visual meaning, uh, because I think that's so important in the culture that we live in. Again, uh, the, the thoughtful person, the person who can take a critical stance toward their visual environment um, is, is more powerful, more um, uh more of an agent to me than the person who takes it in um you know and doesn't reflect critically on it uh so we do we use uh scott mcleod's understanding comics and um i have also gotten recently a, a wonderful book called how to read nancy uh i don't know <laughs> yeah. this i gotta tell you this how to read nancy book i've heard of it Big coffee table book. It's remarkable because it uses one three-panel comic from Nancy on every page, and by deleting certain portions of the image or the dialogue, and by emphasizing other things, it shows you every element in the creation of panel comics. You know, uh, it's just remarkable. Um, but uh, the first time I did that class, um, Jill Lepore's book about. Wonder Woman and about her creator had had just come out in paperback and I that was called to my attention um, and that story was so insane I mean you just crazy. can't believe the next layer after the next layer and then like yeah. that the ending is Wonder Woman's two different halves wound up a very happy lesbian couple like you're just yeah, like what that's right. that's right 
And, and so I thought this is exactly what mostly white scandal loving freshmen out in Eastern Washington <laughs> love. So anyway, uh, I will say that with the first year experience classes uh, at our school, because of various things, students are assigned into them rather than choosing them. So I get head scratches who are like, why am I here? Why are, why do comics matter? What, or what are we doing? You know? Hmm, yeah. And the goal is to win over those, those people, you know, that's kind of my secret goal. And I love how you approach comics as such a visual identity, especially because one of the things that I've always thought is comics and doctor who have so much in common every couple of years, they have to reboot the creative team changes hands. If you ask Stan, if you asked Stanley for any details about any of the things he worked on for the most part, he had no idea what you were talking about. He called Cyclops, the eye guy. He called angel the wings and repeatedly and frequently in many interviews called Jean gray, that girl one. So Right. You know, right. it was one of those things where, you know, Roy Thomas came in and gave this person their personality and Chris Claremont came in and is the one who right. made Wolverine part of the team. And right. it's so important to understand how the visuals work with the story. There's an amazing piece on Born Again by Frank Miller and David Mazzuccelli, where a writer named Matt Fraction went through and found visual parallels so that the emotional arcs of the characters radiate out of central points and mm-hmm. these central points have overlap rippling in each direction so you can chart different emotional narratives by the reflection point making the book basically a mirror of itself every right. so often and it's just fascinating how right. the visuals can transform it I, I did that um, to to a great extent with with Watchmen uh, in the in the class. Uh, this was before Leslie Klinger's annotated Watchmen had come out. That was about a year ago or so. Uh, but you know there are a lot of great books on Watchmen and the iconography there. And I tried to tell the students. I said, if you are a comic book writer or artist, a lot of your job, despite the the, the fantastical element of of what you do on a daily basis a lot of your job is kind of repetitive stuff. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's creating the same thing in slightly different ways over and over again. And I said, these folks are so creative that their hind brains are working on ways of putting visual meaning into scenes uh, that you, know, you may not notice on a second or even a third uh, run through unless you, know, you, you have some sort of serious genre critic or or academic you know uh leading you through it uh that having been said i think it's almost always worth it um to to do that sort of close close reading with the students before we go is there anything in the pipeline for you uh what's what's your next source of philosophical exploration yeah well i'm working on a book that has nothing well i guess to a certain extent it has to do with popular <laughs> culture but um, I'm kind of a fan of American pragmatism. And hmm. one of the things that American pragmatism has always emphasized is the life of engagement and practice and habit and learning. Um, and in many ways, pragmatism has been uh, resistant to the intellectualism of a lot of 20th century uh, and early 21st century philosophy. Um, and a lot of analytic philosophers are still 
suspicious of pragmatism. Um, I, I'm trying to write a book in which I integrate pragmatism with uh, philosophy of craft and also with a lot of popular stuff that's been written lately about the nature of work and what work intelligence really is, what work with the hand uh, does. Um, and so that book is one I'm working on. I also just put a hand out to a, a friend, a good friend who I play D and D with <laughs> in the disability studies program at Eastern, uh, about, uh, co-authoring a, a volume for obverse books who does the black archive for Dr. Who. These are book length analyses of one Dr. Who episode alone. And, uh, my friend Ryan and I are interested in doing something about the Peter Capaldi two-parter uh, Under the Lake and Before the Flood. Oh, it's, yeah, um, it's excellent, yeah. I, it, it's great. I mean, students always love it. I pitched it to him because I said, uh, this show is remarkable for a variety of reasons, but including the fact that it's got the first deaf actress playing a deaf character on Doctor Who. And uh, what do we want to say about the perception of her disability there? how the doctor is portrayed in that episode as being like an autistic person. He has cards, right, to guide him through difficult uh, uh, encounters with people under stress. And so we're going to try to work on a theme that bridges the, the concept of the bootstrap paradox with uh, perceptions of disability in that episode uh, and produce a, a book about those that two-parter, which I love so much. Very cool. Um, well, with that D and D reference, we've hit the nerd bingo for the episode. So um, yep. we've we've now mentioned every single property you can, yep. <laughs> that, yep. that, that we nerds could possibly mention. Kevin S. Decker, it was uh, so much fun to talk to you, and I really, really oh, appreciate it. And great um, conversation, Don uh, and Nico. Thanks so much for for talking to me. Our pleasure, uh, and please do come back sometime. Would love to. Would love to. All right. Thank you. Good luck. Good luck getting back into the classroom. Yeah, um, thanks. I'll need it. <laughs> yeah, me too.
Yeah, my daughter went to Wellesley, and the one time that I made it across the country to go visit her, I was like, oh, man, you know, this has, you know, eastern Washington has nothing on this place. This is gorgeous. Wellesley, fun fact, is the whitest place in America. So (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm not going to trash talk Wellesley. I have a lot of friends from Wellesley, so I I should probably shut up uh, before I get in trouble.